Well, it's one of my favorite weeks of the year um, because Thursday I'm planning to eat and I'm planning to eat well. Um, it's my favorite, probably Thanksgiving is probably my favorite holiday. Um, we have a tradition where we go to my mom's uh, usually on Friday and my mom goes all out for Thanksgiving. It's, uh, it's a big spread and, and she really is a good cook and much better cook than I am. And so I enjoy uh, Friday. I will make up for lost time uh, this year on Friday. And then next Sunday, I'm going to preach about gluttony. And so y'all come ready for that. Uh, now today, we're, uh, we're going to be in Luke chapter 17. So if you've got a Bible, go ahead and flip over to Luke chapter 17. And as you're getting there, I want to tell you about a story I, I heard a couple of weeks ago. It was about a, a mom who had put a sign in her front yard that said, Mom on strike. Michelle had moved into her kid's treehouse outside. And she vowed that she was not coming out of that treehouse until some things had changed around their house. Now the interesting part about this was that a local TV station, local news channel, picked up the story. And, they, and so they went out to the house and they shot video of of the treehouse and mom in the treehouse and, and the sign in the yard. And then, much to my joy, they interviewed dad. Because that's who I really wanted to hear from, was what was dad going to say about this? And so they interviewed dad, and during the interview, her husband said, he said, look, I've told the kids they got, they got to cool it with the back talk. I've told them they've got to start doing their chores again. We're doing everything we can to get her to come down. And there was a sense of desperation in his voice. I mean, I don't know. Guys, let's just be fair about this. Our wives, especially in the child-raising years, are much better than we deserve. Um, they do so much more for us and more for our kids than I think we ever give enough credit for. But watching the, the, the pain in this guy's eyes as he was talking to this news channel, it, it was funny, but at the same time it wasn't because there was a sense of desperation. Like, we've got to get her out of that treehouse now. And she was very adamant. Until things are different, I'm not coming down. Mom on strike. Now, it makes perfect sense, human sense, when you've offended someone that you want to do, uh, when you've done something that's not right, that you want to make it up to that person, that you want to make amends. In fact, that's what we spent four weeks talking about in, in our last series, Bad Blood. It makes perfect human sense. But it really doesn't make any spiritual sense, does it? In, in this passage in Luke that we're going to look at, Jesus goes... To, to great lengths to make it clear that if we're depending on what we do to make ourselves right with God, then we're barking up the wrong tree. Then we're barking up the tree with mom in the treehouse who says, I'm not coming down. After all, if you, if you really press this down, deep down in our hearts, what, what we really want is for the power of God to, to come down. What we really want is for God to be real and present and moving in our midst, changing hearts, changing culture. What we want is for God to come down from whatever treehouse in heaven that he's in and be present with us right now. So how do you get God to come down when the standards are so high? Do you, you want to see how high these standards are? Look in Luke chapter 17, just at the opening verses. Jesus said this to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. And this is my favorite part of the passage. So watch yourselves. 
I love that. He's, Jesus is very clear about this, right? Like, don't cause somebody else to sin. In fact, if you cause a child to sin, it's going to be better for you to take a millstone around your neck and be thrown into the lake than it would be for you to, to, to just hang around. He says, so watch yourselves. What's the standard? What's the standard Jesus is setting here? Cause no sin, right? That's the standard. Cause no sin. That's a high standard. And Jesus was really just getting started because after that he says, after he says, watch yourselves, he goes on to say, if your brother sins, rebuke him. Not only should you cause no sin, you should confront others in their sin for, for their sake, for the sake of the kingdom, for the sake of the testimony of the gospel, for the sake of the, the, the spiritual good of a brother or sister in Christ. For, for someone else's good, you should confront them. So the standard is cause no sin and confront sin. When, when someone is caught in wrongdoing, when when they're going down a bad path, down a dangerous way, Jesus says, you're to confront them about their sin. Now, there's a, there's a loving and graceful and truthful way to do it, and then there's a, a way that we typically do it, which causes more harm than good. But, but Jesus is very clear about this, though. You, you, you cause no sin and you confront sin. And then he raises the standard even a little higher. He says, if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day, and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. That's what it Jesus it says, cause no sin. Confront others and forgive sin. Right? That's, that's the standard that Jesus is setting for us. Cause no sin, confront sin, and forgive sin. Now, those are really high standards. And the disciples that Jesus is talking to here, they, they knew that. And so it's with a, a degree of chagrin, maybe even fear, that they have to call out for, to Jesus for help in this meeting. And so if they're going to meet the standard, they've got to have Jesus' Jesus's help. And so in verse 5, it says, The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. They said, if, if, if we're going to meet these standards because they're really high, Jesus, you're going to have to help us. You're going to have to increase our faith. And that's really just a sanctified way of saying, God, we, we need to get some help over here. And Jesus responds to them by, by admitting to some degree that they're right. It's a matter of faith. If you, want, if you want power to do such things, you've got to have faith. So he replies in verse 6, he says, If you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, Be uprooted and plant it in the sea, and it will obey you. You want to see the power of God in your lives? Then you have to have faith. Of course, the key question is, have faith in what? This is what Jesus made plain in his response. That God is not moved by the deeds that we perform. That, that we are, he's not moved by our good deeds, by our actions, by our righteous uh, check marks that we get. He's not moved by any of that. And he goes on to explain that through really a kind of a troubling parable. He, he goes on to tell this parable, of a story about a man who had a servant who was out working in, a, in the field. And the servant had been working all day just like a dog and he, he, was, he was wore out. And then when it came time for the servant to come in, in from the field, the master didn't say to him, hey, thanks for, for all your work today. Hey, thanks for everything that you did. Take the rest of the night off. No, he didn't say that at all. In fact, what he says is, go fix my meal. It's supper time. I'm hungry. Go fix my meal. And after the servant had done that, the master didn't say thank you. He wasn't supposed to. He, the servant just did what he was supposed to do. And the conclusion of this story comes in verse 10, which we really don't like because he's addressing the disciples in this, but it's really to us as well. Jesus says this, he says, So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, We are unworthy servants. 
we've only done our duty. Now, it might be hard for us to understand that in, in the ancient context, to, be, to understand what's being said in this parable. So let's try and bring it into a modern day scenario. Imagine, guys, you've been out in the yard working all day. You, you, it's a Saturday afternoon and you've it's, you got leaves everywhere and, and you've been out there all day trying, trying to get your leaf blower to work and it's just not working and you've been to the, to the hardware store five different times. You know, that's at least the number of trips I'd have to take. And you've been there and, and you come back and you finally get it and you've just worked hard all day. And you come inside at dinner time and, and, and there's nobody home. So instead of just going in and fixing your own meal, you decide, you know what, I'm just going to go out to eat. It, it'll be easier that way. And so I'm just going to go out to eat. And so you go to Denny's or Shoney's or Cracker Barrel or wherever. And, and you get a table and you sit down and you order your meal. And then after a little while, the waitress comes back with your meal and she sets a plate down at the table. She sets your plate down. And then she goes and she gets another plate and she sits it down at the table. And she sits down beside you. How do you think you would react to that? You'd probably say, hey, wait a minute, what, what are you doing here? And she would say, well, hey, I, I got your meal, and so now I've gone and got my meal, and I'm just going to sit here and eat with you. And you say, oh, no, 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 you were doing your job, right? Your job was to go get my meal. That's what you're being paid for. It doesn't give you a right to sit at my table, does it? In, in, in the ancient world, to sit at the master's table was to, to have the same rights of the household. It meant that you were on equal footing with the master. You had equal representation with him. Uh, another example in our culture might be, be like this. You know, say you bought a house, say, and, and you had a realtor. Say Mark Blair sells you a house. And, and Mark has helped you get this house, and you, it's the house of your dreams. And you have, you've, you've packed up all your stuff. You've put it in a U-Haul van. You, you've driven down to the new neighborhood, and you've moved all your stuff in, and it's great. And you're just ready to relax and enjoy your new house. And then you notice another moving van. Pull in your driveway, and it's your realtor, it's Mark Blair. And Mark gets out of the, out of the U-Haul van, and he walks up to the, to the door, knocks on the door, and you say, yeah, what, what's going on, what are you doing? He says, well, you moved all your stuff in, and I helped you get this house, so I'm going to get my stuff and move in too, and I'm going to live here too, right? And you say, no, 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 that's not going to happen, right? You, you don't have right to my house. Just because you helped me, just because you did your job, doesn't give you right to my house simply doing what you have done what you're supposed to do doesn't qualify you for God's household and I know that's hard for us to hear sometimes but just doing the things that we're supposed to do doesn't qualify us for God's household it doesn't give us a right to heaven and you can imagine the disciples hearing this you know sitting at the feet of Jesus hearing this thinking wait a second we gave up everything for you. We gave up our livelihood. We gave up our, our family. We gave up the fellowship of other people in our synagogues and in our towns. And you're telling us that doesn't count? That, that, that's got to count for something, right, Jesus? But Jesus said, no, 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 no. Because God is not moved by the deeds that you do. And I'll be honest with you. I don't like hearing that. In fact, I think few people do like hearing that. Because we, we somehow take our good works and try to use them as, as bargaining chips before God. And God is reminding us that our bargaining chips have no currency with Him. We, we might believe, for example, that we're being faithful by, by doing our, our daily devotions. And we think, Lord, we, we've read the Bible every day at our family dinner table. For 365 days, we have read the Bible. So God, you've got to take away all of our family's problems. 
And God is reminding us that he will not be any man's debtor. That our good works have no currency with him. If, if we're trying to trophy our goodness to get God to recognize us as members of his household, he's telling us that won't work. About 10 years ago, I went and visited a man in his home, and he was a big game hunter. And I knew this going in, and I was actually I was kind of looking forward to seeing some of his trophies that he had accumulated over the years. And as soon as you walked in the door, you couldn't help but notice them because they were everywhere. There was a zebra skin hanging on the wall, and there were some antelope skins that were, that were the, the upholstery for some chairs. There was even a, a large footstool that had been made from an elephant's foot, and it was really quite impressive. And so I started asking the guy questions about these things, you know, where they come from. And as he started to explain all of his trophies on display, he started apologizing for them. Because I think he thought my internal dialogue was like, hey, aren't these endangered species? You know, hey, did you shoot Bambi? Something kind of like that. And so he began to, to say things like, well, these were shot a long time ago before they were endangered species. Or, or I was just on the hunt. I didn't actually shoot this one. And I'm just like, right, whatever, right? But even in his display, there was an apology. What does the Bible teach when it, sa- when it says our best works are only filthy rags to God? That the very thing that the rest of the world does to get God to recognize them and to respond to them is not working. The rest of the world says, look, Lord, look what I have done. I have done all of these things for you. Recognize me. Respond to me, right? We, we, we act like the whole world is, is, is balancing scales. And so people think, you know, well, I'm not perfect, but, but the good outweighs the bad, right? We need to see it from God's perspective, though. He's saying no matter how much good you do, it does not qualify you for God's favor. Not in and of itself, it doesn't. And you have to recognize that even our best works don't fall on the good side of that scale before God. Because of the great disproportion between our best works and God's true holiness, they can't count in that way. They can't ever equal out. And that's a scary realization for us because it goes against the world's notion of what will qualify us to to enter into God's kingdom. And And here's how you know this is true. Because think about the way we talk about people at funerals. Just think for a moment about how we talk about people at funerals. Let me be crystal clear about this. There is only one way to get to heaven. It is through the grace of Jesus. It is through the grace of God that gets us into heaven. But it's through that grace that we enter into a relationship with Jesus. That's, that's our pathway into heaven. But think about when you go to a funeral. And you're at a funeral for somebody that you know has never had a relationship with Jesus. What do we say about them? Well, they're in a better place now. Why do we say that? Oh, because they were, good, they were a good person. They were good people, right? It's like, it's like we think the church has a monopoly on good people, but the church doesn't, all right? The church does not have a monopoly on good people. There are lots of good people that live out in this world that don't come to church, that will never darken the door of a church. But when they die, we come to their funerals and we say, well, they're, they're in a better place because they were good people, right? As if their good works are somehow going to qualify them for favor with the king, in the kingdom of God. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 that's not how this works. That will not qualify you. Your good works will not qualify you for the kingdom of God. They they don't get you free free entry into heaven. And so the disciples, they they had to be thinking when they hear this, well, what do we do now? What what do we do now? Because they they think, you know, we've sacrificed so much. So surely he's got to recognize us. Surely Jesus is going to recognize all that we have done for, for him. But Jesus made it crystal clear. That God would not be moved 
by their good deeds. So it raises the question, what does move God? What, what does move the heart of God? I think God is moved when we acknowledge our desperation. I think God is moved when we acknowledge our desperation. If you look at the rest of, of Luke 17, there's a, there's a story in there starting at verse 11. And, and in that story, Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, and, and he's traveling along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he gets to this village, ten men who had leprosy come out, and here's what it says. They, they, it says, they stood at a distance, and they called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. Why'd they call out in a loud voice? Well, because in the ancient world, if, if someone had leprosy, it was perceived not only to be a physical ailment, a physical disease, but also a spiritual disease. And so to keep leprosy from spreading throughout the whole town, the whole city, they, they made them leave the town. They made them leave the city. They had to leave the comforts of their home. They couldn't uh, you know, enjoy the embrace of a hug from, from a loved one. They had, to, they had to go outside the city walls. They had to leave all of that. It was really the, the first case of quarantine. Uh, something, a word we all became familiar with in the last couple of years, isn't it? This was, this was the first case of this. If you had leprosy, you were quarantined into a leper's camp. And it was outside of, of the gates of the city. And, and only people who had leprosy were there. You couldn't have contact with anybody else. And so, um, and, and just to keep people from getting too close, they would call out, unclean, unclean, stay away from me. And it was, that was your warning. If you got close to them because of that, and you didn't heed their warning, well, you were going to join them. And so in this des desperate condition, these lepers, they cry out to Jesus and they say, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. And what did Jesus do? He had pity on them. Why? Because God is not moved by the deeds that we do. He is moved by the desperation that we own, that we claim, that we acknowledge before Him. We, we know how this works in our, in our human relationships, right? I've, I've got a friend who's in ministry and He's got a son that, as his son got into his late teenage years, just really turned away from the faith and away from his family. At one point, even even ran away and, and just got into some really wild and rebellious living. And this son, he had he'd done all kinds of things that had really just embarrassed and hurt his family. So much so that the mother, the wife, decided that she wasn't even sure that she could love her own child anymore. She just had so much hurt. And so much guilt over the stuff that he had done. And, and so after one of the escapades that he'd been out on and, and really just had done some horrible things, he came back home and he did what he'd done several times before. He, he protested that his actions really hadn't been all that wrong. He tried to justify them. He promised that he would make it up to him and that he would do better. But his mom, she just couldn't bear it anymore. They'd been through this, down this path so many times before and so... As he's kind of pleading this case about how I'm going to do better, she just heard him as empty words, and she got up and she walked out of the living room. The little, the the young man, not start saying little boy, the young man sitting there now, left by himself in the living room, begins to look through a fo family photo album that was sitting sitting there. And as he's looking through the pictures, just kind of contemplating life and his place in life and where and what he's done and all the the consequences of his actions. He sees a picture of himself as a little boy with his mom. And the picture kind of moved him. And so he, he called out to his mom and said, hey, would you come back in here? I want to talk to you again for a minute. 
And as the mom came back in, just still hurt and trying to figure out what boundaries she was going to set and, and how she could continue to love her son through all of this, the, the young man says to his mom, Mom, I, I realize why you can't love me anymore. Look at this picture. Th- this picture here, I'm a little boy and your eyes are just full of hope for me. And I have dashed all of those hopes. I have crushed all of those hopes. And when the mother heard her, her son, this time in, in, a, in a voice of desperation, not in a voice of, of promising to do better, that I'll make it up and we'll never have to do this again, but instead in a voice of desperation, it, it broke her mother's heart again. And she was moved for her, her son. And she wanted to embrace him, so she did. She hugged him. And, and I wish I could tell you that everything has worked out great for them, but there's still been some road bumps and obstacles along the way for them. But, but there's, there's a desperation there. And, and that desperation is leading to reconciliation. And, and our God is telling you and me to not come to Him championing our goodness, to trophying how, how good we are. He wants us to instead to come acknowledging how deeply we need His grace. And it's when we recognize that God is willing to receive those who come in desperation that we become willing to be repentant. Do you recognize that? That if God wants us to trophy our goodness, then we will always wait till we measure up. Then we will always wait till, till the scales are, are equal or maybe even in our favor if, if it's based on our goodness. But if we recognize that it's God's great kindness that leads us to repentance, then in desperation we will be willing to approach God because He listens to a desperate person. I can pray, Jesus, Master, have pity on me. This anger in my life, this lust, this ambition, Lord, this awfulness that that I hate, I see this monster of sin in my life, I look at it and I've got to face it and I've got to say, it's mine, I, I own it, knowing that when I'm willing to do that, when I'm willing to own my own sin, when I'm willing to own my own desperation, God will say, child, you are mine. You are not your own. You are mine. And, and he won't say that because I've trophied my goodness. But instead because my desperation leads me to the foot of the cross. And that's where I can say to my Savior, Jesus, Master, have pity on me. And that's not the natural condition of my heart. It's not the natural condition of your heart either. I, I want to recognize my position and my, my teaching, what I believe about Scripture. And, and I, I do these things, and I, and I want to do so many other things. But I have to be reminded uh, about how God desires my desperation. And if that moves God, if, if desperation is what moves God, then we should get some sort of hint about what should move us too. After all, something moved in the leper in an entirely different direction because of what Christ had done in his life. If you go back to that story that, that we were talking about just a minute ago with the ten lepers, remember what happens in that story? Jesus told the lepers to go to the priest. You go to the priest show, and show yourself to him and, and be clean. Go through the ceremonial cleanings and you will be clean. You will be uh, healed. That's what he told them. And so it says, and as they went, they were cleansed. I noticed that. It says, as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw he was healed, came back praising God in a loud voice. Think about what had just happened. You go from being in this community of lepers where you're outcast from everybody else. You are literally on the societal fringes. 
And there's a man that says, hey, you're going to be healed. Go to the priest and show, him, show yourself and, and you'll be healed. And knowing that when you show yourself, you're going to be able to be returned to all of life, to all of civility, to, to life as you have known it. And as they were going, it says, they were healed. They hadn't got to the priest yet. They hadn't followed all of the instructions yet. As they were going, they were going. They were doing what Jesus had told them. They were being obedient. It says they, they were healed. But notice, they weren't at the temple yet. As they were going. And as they're going, one of the lepers, when he sees that he's healed, he notices, hey, I don't have these awful skin sores anymore. There's something that's changed in me. I feel better. There's, there's something better, different about me. He doesn't follow through with the rest of the command. Because the command was, go show yourself to the priest. Instead, he goes back. He goes back to Jesus, praising him in a loud voice. Think about what he was risking at that point. He'd risked a change in his health because what had changed could change back, couldn't it? He'd just been cleansed. He could tell something was different. If he would just go another few blocks to the synagogue, you know, they, they had to be close. If he could just keep going to the synagogue, go a few more, the priest would declare him clean, and then everything would be back to normal he'd go back to the fellowship in his synagogues he'd go back to his livelihood he'd go back to the arms of of his loved ones if he would just keep going right that's all he had to do instead he risked everything he risked it all to go back and give praise to jesus he risked a change in his health he risked a change in christ's demeanor i mean there were 10 who were cleansed right but only one went back to jesus we're, we're told that that he's a samaritan that, and while we can't prove this, the impression is, is that the other nine were all Jews. And so the, the nine Jewish people, they continue to the priest. The one Samaritan comes back to praise Jesus. He, he could have, Jesus could have had a different demeanor when he came back. Jesus could have said, hey, you didn't do what I told you to do. You didn't follow instructions, so you're not going to be healed. He could have said, hey, you're a Samaritan. You're not a Jew. You, I'm a Jewish rabbi, so, so forget you. You're not going to be healed. He didn't know what Jesus was going to do. For all he knew, Jesus would, would, would not heal him. He risked everything. But he knew something was different. And so he knew he had to give thanksgiving. It was gratitude and thanksgiving and praise that motivated him to go back. And he had to go back. So think of, think of what's being said here. It says he cried out to Jesus in a loud voice. Then how did he praise Jesus? In a loud voice, didn't he? The, the degree of his desperation matched the degree of his appreciation. And there's a, there's a message in that, I think. The, the one who's been cured of much praises much, right? The one who, who knows something really has, has happened in him is, is because of the goodness in Jesus, not because of, of his own goodness, is compelled to offer praise. That, that the change is what moves, it's what motivates him. It, it gives strength to the soul because the joy of the Lord is our strength. That's what Scripture tells us, right? That's what we have to recognize, that, that that's our great motivation as well. It's not that, you know, our motivation isn't, well, I'm going to do this so the, the ogre in the sky won't get me, that he's not going to smite me or strike me down with lightning. I, I'm not going to do this so that I'll just get more stuff, either in this life or in the life to come, right? Th those weren't the leper's motivations. And I'm not saying that they don't have any purpose in the Christian life, but it should not be the primary motive that drives us either. What drove the leper is, is love for the one who loved him so much that he would heal his leprosy. Do you know what it means to say, Jesus, Master, have pity on me? And, and by faith, do you know what he does to change us? 
He, he changes our priorities. He changes everything that we're willing to do. <laughs> I heard a, a story about a little brother and, a, and an older sister. The little brother wasn't quite school-aged. And his big sister, who he just adored, was, was kindergarten age. And one day the little girl brought home from school uh, a chocolate teddy bear that she'd been given. And so she took this chocolate teddy bear that she, she couldn't wait to show her, her mom and dad when she got home. And she took it and she put it in her room for safekeeping so that she could have it as a special treat to eat, eat another day. The next day while she was at school, her little brother went into her room and mom hears him in the room. And so she goes in to see what he's doing and she catches him. She says, hey, what are you doing? And he turns around with the evidence of the crime all over his face. And his mother explains, hey, you, that wasn't yours. You weren't supposed to take that teddy bear, that chocolate bear, and eat that. You're going to have to explain this to your big sister when she gets home. And there's a really good chance she's going to be really mad at you. She, she was saving that for a special occasion. She's, she's probably going to be really mad at you. And so this little boy who just adored his big sister then the idea of of his big sister being upset with him just it just ripped his heart out and so he just begins crying and he's got all these tears of guilt and shame and 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 his mom's trying to console him but you know remind him hey you did this and you're gonna have to explain this so the day goes on and you can imagine how worried the little boy probably was the anticipation of the arrival of his big sister home just builds and builds and builds on the day and finally the moment comes when the school bus pulls in 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 the in the driveway and the little girl gets off the off the school bus and starts walking up the sidewalk and the little boy's standing at the at the window looking out and sees his sister come in and as soon as the door opens the little boy just runs and and hugs his sister and, and just starts crying immediately and he's you know sissy i'm so sorry i, I hate your teddy bear your, your chocolate bear i'm so sorry I, I didn't mean to i'll never do it again and all this kind of stuff and the little girl she just sat down by her brother, who's just crying all of these big, you know, big crocodile tears. And she said, it's okay. I'll love you anyways. And I think that's a wonderful picture of the Christian life. We have recognized our shame for our sin. We, we own it. We acknowledge it before God. And then we know through the words of the gospel that God is saying, my child, you are mine. I will love you anyway. We become like the leper and throw our entire being before God and say, God, thank you. Thank, thank you, Lord. How can I serve you because of what you have done for me? It is ultimately joy that gives strength to our lives. And that's where this whole account ends in, in verse 19. Jesus said to the leper at his feet, Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. And we think, what faith? I mean, he didn't... He didn't recite the Apostles' Creed. He didn't give any kind of great statement about the divinity of Jesus and who he was. All that happened was that the leper said, Look, God, everything that, look, Jesus, everything that is good about me, everything that's right about me, you have done. You did it. And we might think that's not much faith. And the reality is, is it might, might not be that much faith. But that's this much faith. The faith of a mustard seed remember jesus said if you have the faith of a mustard seed if you want to see the power of god come down then all you need is the faith of a mustard seed your faith is belief that jesus did everything that's right about you look i long to see the power of god displayed in my life in our church's life 
And Jesus said, all we need is the faith of a mustard seed. That doesn't seem like a whole lot, does it? And yet so oftentimes I find myself wondering, where is the power of God? It makes me think, maybe my faith isn't as strong as it should be. Maybe my priorities aren't always where they ought to be. And maybe you might say the same thing is true for you, that maybe they're not where they should be. Your faith can always be stronger. Of course our faith could always be stronger. So where is our faith? Are we so hung up on, a, on our knowledge of who God is, is that we forget to, to be obedient? Or are we so hung up on just being obedient that we forget to acknowledge who God is? Somewhere in the middle there is a, there's an appropriate balance that God is God and we are not. It's just that simple. We are not. And we, we will serve Him and we will do good things, not to buy us favor with Him, but because of what He has already done. Tim's words at communion were so appropriate. It's not about me. And it's not about anything that I have already done. It's about God. And it's about what He has already done for us. Let me pray for us.